Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat writing as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Green Guy and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finua of Tafanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. What a weekend it's been! We're recording on Sunday. Something very special happened yesterday, which meant we moved our recording spot. Do you want to say it? Yeah. The Black Ferns were playing in the Women's Rugby World Cup final, and I needed to witness that live. So we had to move our session, and I'm glad we did because they won, which means they are now six-timed Rugby World Cup champions. They are the most successful sports team of any sport, any gender in the world. They are amazing. And I just adore them. And I'm so happy that 45,000 people turned up to Eden Park Mm. to watch them play. You know, the the player, Kendra Coxage, who is the number nine, she retired. And she is a close personal friend of mine. She, her family made this comment about, you know, from her last match when she faced this team, that 400 people turned out to play when they played England last time. And now there were 45,000 New Zealanders turning up to watch them play. When I used to work for New Zealand Rugby in 2014, they didn't have a social media presence at all. I set Mm. up their Instagram, their Twitter accounts, their Facebook pages. And to see thousands of people support them is honestly just the most wonderful thing. Like they're amazing women. And to see that people are finally giving them the love and care and attention and support that they have always deserved is just magnificent. And I'm just so, so proud of them. It's just the best thing. It was a fantastic game to watch. Yeah, just a beautiful game of rugby as well. Like really flowing, not just boring where nothing happens, which is often what happens in the men's game. Like the women are playing incredible rugby. Mm. Yeah, it was definitely my uh it's what sparked joy for me this week oh, for sure. <laughs> I didn't want to presume. I did assume that it would probably be the main thing, the main highlight because a World Cup is a big deal. Um, but yeah. yeah, oh, it was an incredible match. We had a very happy nine-year-old here. His team is the Black Ferns. If you ask him, what's your team? He says, I'm in the Black Ferns, which is so cute. <laughs> cute. Um, and he made signs that said, go Black Ferns. And then he made a big one that said, no, for whenever the other team scored. <laughs> and he would hold it up at the television and say, no. Aww. And um, he made another one that said, you can do it, which was a really great. So they just made my week. To see him so happy i think it was just so lovely to see so yeah. many people like so many people are like i don't watch rugby i don't ro- like rugby but i like watching them play i just mm. love that i'm just really into that as a concept yeah yeah i think i would enjoy watching them play pretty much any match to be honest mm-hmm. because the more i watch them the more i start to understand the personalities of the players and knowing that you put poured so much of your heart and time into making them a visible team is also a factor for sure Mm. yeah it was a great game it was also the highlight of my week I will say we had my father-in-law over and back in his school days many moons ago he played rugby so he was able to explain all of the terms to me and I was like (laughs) oh the cheerleader pop-up is called the line out okay because I just call it the cheerleader pop-up that's that's what they do they pop up like a cheerleader um so it was kind of fun to have that just somebody Mm. actually who had played enough to understand the terms it's always nice when there's at least one person who really understands the rules because otherwise it's like, hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that's happening. I'm the same. I am. Um, I watch a lot of the Matildas as well because I think they're a fantastic team. And so the soccer is sort of the other sport that I watch 
semi-regularly. And I'm always so glad when Gray Skill shows up to do commenting because I'm like, oh, she's going to explain everything. And I really love that she will explain it for me in a way that I can understand it. <laughs> so grateful yeah. for the good commenters out there. Yeah. What a great weekend, nice. though. Oh. Yeah, it was joyful. It was just wonderful. Yeah. Just, yeah. Good vibes. Um, Was that what sparked joy for you or did you have something else? There were a few other little things. Like I got an amazing new pair of colorful running shoes. I, and I will mm-hmm. put a link in the show notes because I think everybody deserves to have pretty running shoes. And these are also queer running shoes because they're made by Lisa Congdon with Brooks. And she's an amazing artist who I really love. And then I've just been working on some knitting in between when I was too stressed to look at the rugby. I was knitting. So <laughs> I've been getting a lot better at that. Very stressful. With all the stress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goodness, it's good to have a project to keep your hands busy. Otherwise, you're just chewing your nails like me. Yeah, or eating all of the cheese that we bought. I had so much cheese yeah. yesterday. Stress eating Maltesers because I'd gotten Maltesers. I was just like, ah, <laughs> shoving them in my mouth. Anyway, that's fine. That's great. That's right. It was a great mm. day. Well, this week we're reading chapters 41 to 47 through the theme of arrogance. Did you have a story about arrogance for us? I do. So I want to talk about how arrogance or I guess presumption can kind of be a good thing or as I'm as I'm saying it like there's a case for being pushy making the case for being pushy sometimes and the reason that this particular story came up is because Adam in this week's reading finds himself really vulnerable and and unable to avoid accepting help so I wanted to think about how we as a society kind of pride independence over community and how that can cost us so I kind of jokingly say that I'm pathologically helpful, and I am, but I come by it honestly. My parents are also pathologically helpful, which you might remember from the angel slash axe murderer story. Most of this Mm -hmm. comes from being part of a community. They've always been part of a community that's bigger than them. So sprawling extended family or a school community or workplace or church. This story is about how belonging to a community can create a sort of arrogance that can be used for good. So when I was a kid, one of the neighborhood kids, Tara, used to hang out at our house a lot. We got to know her family the way that you do when little kids play together, like you chat with the other parent in the living room, you wave as they go past on the street, that kind of thing. One day, though, their house caught fire and burned down. Tara's mom was at work, but her dad and baby brother were home. Everyone survived, mostly unharmed. The baby's arm was burned, but not too badly. But their entire house was gone. Everything was gone. My mom immediately went into crisis management mode. She figured the list of things that would need doing and decided she needed to help. So she called Tara's mom at work to tell her what happened. And she said, you'll come and stay with us for a couple of days. And Tara's mom was immediately like, no, thank you. It's it's fine. We'll figure something out. But my mom was not having this. She said, and I remember this really clearly, Michelle, everything is gone. The only underwear you own is the underwear you're wearing right now. We are going to help you. And, you know, at this point, Michelle realized that it would probably be a good thing to put herself in my mother's extremely capable management. And she did, in fact, allow my mother to help her. I think this is a sign of how arrogance can be used for good. The odds are that Michelle and her family would have been okay eventually. But my mom was arrogant enough to recognize that she could help this family. And she was arrogant enough to push past being polite and say it bluntly. You need help and we are going to help you. And it wasn't at all that Mm. Michelle couldn't have solved this problem, but my mom knew that she would be split between having to deal with all of the things that come with the house fire, like looking after her hospitalized baby and dealing with insurance claims and shopping for new clothes for everyone in the family, finding a place to stay for however long it took. I mean, my mom was able to get clothes for them and provide shelter and be a temporary stalwart for this family. She took on that Mm. emotional energy of day-to-day stuff so that Michelle could focus on her sick kid and getting a place to live. And that took enough. Like, that was enough. That was about all she could do. 
So I think there are two types of arrogance at work here, like the arrogance of a woman who can and will mobilize her skills in community care to care for you whether you like it or not, my mom, (laughs) and the arrogance of a person who's used to being outside of that level of community care and doesn't know how to receive it, which is Michelle. I mean, it was arrogant of my mom to push in and make somebody accept help, but I don't think it was wrong. I think it was the right thing to do, even if she didn't do it in a particularly gentle way. You can lead a horse to water, but sometimes you do have to bully the horse and to realize that, you, you know, you're not going to take no for an answer because they definitely need that drink. Hmm. Interesting. I've never thought of being pushy as being arrogant, but you're right. There's probably a level of, well, of course, I know what's best here. So, of course, that's what we're doing. Yeah. I often think that the reason I respond really negatively to people giving me advice is because I assume that they're telling me that they know better than me. And that's where I came mm. from that. I was like, well... I often do know how I would approach a problem, but having to remove myself from that, because I love giving advice and I love saying, oh, I might have the solution for that, but I'm not, I don't ever actually need people to follow my advice. Sometimes I'm frustrated when they like won't, but I don't need them to. So I think there's a bit of assumed arrogance on that. And I was thinking like, is there, is there a time in my life when someone really didn't want to accept help, but they actually really needed it? Hmm. I know that I get really touchy when people try to tell me what to do. And I'm like, I don't want to, I know what I know. I know what I can do. I can do it better. I'm, I'm in charge of me. But like, sometimes people just are trying to help and it's, it's arrogant of them to assume that I need that help, but maybe I'm arrogant and thinking that they're trying to boss me around. Oh yeah. I mean, like people, when they tell me what to do sometimes, I'm like, why do you assume that I'm an idiot and I don't know that already like obviously I know that already which is 100% arrogance on my part because I'm like uh of course I know that already like what am I incapable yeah I resent people thinking (laughs) that I'm not I don't think anybody who knows you or has known you for even a little while could think that you're not would think that you're not smart and capable then why do they insist on telling me what to do at work so rude maybe because (laughs) that's what they need for themselves mm. that's why i over explain everything because i want like you know i have the adhd like give me every step break it down tiny little increments make it super dumb so that i get it don't miss a detail if you miss a detail i'll wonder and then i'll get a block about honestly it. the only thing that gets me through the day sometimes because i have a colleague who tests me particularly and i always just sit there going no jen he has undiagnosed adhd <laughs> You have diagnosed it for him. He refuses to get a real diagnosis, but that's what's happening here. And I'm like, okay, be patient. Yep. Yep. There are lots of coping strategies out there for people who work with ADHD adults, diagnosed or undiagnosed. I will put some in the show notes because I feel like that is a really important. I just think his, like, I, f- I just think his life would be easier. Like witnessing his life causes me distress sometimes because I'm like, you are putting yourself through so much drama for no reason. Like just... Get some medication. My man, your life is going to be so much easier for you. Not for me. I'm not talking about for me. I'm talking for you. (laughs) Is this the guy you made get tiled? All the tiles? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he kept losing everything. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this week he lost his work phone. He had to call like IT being like, can you track my work phone? And they were like, yeah, it's in your house. (laughs) He's like, but I've looked. And I honestly was just with my head in my hands. I just can't cope with it. That level of chaos. I definitely relate to not being able to find stuff. Especially stuff that you know you put somewhere and then someone else moved it. Unhelpful. Yeah, so that was my story about uh, why being arrogant about some things. Sometimes you really do know better than other people and you need to just tell them. Fair enough. Would you like to read our chapter summaries? Yeah, sure thing. So in Henrietta, Kavinsky reveals that he's known Ronan as a dreamer for a long time and offers to teach him how to get what he wants. 
They spend time dreaming, sucking energy out of Cave's water until Ronan finally replaces the Wraith Kamaro. Once he's got it, he's heading back to Monmouth, but Kavinsky thought Ronan would stay with him. Back in DC, Adam isn't just hiding out after fighting with Gansey, he's missing. The Gansey family searches for him, eventually he's found further away than they would have imagined looking, having lost time and struggling with memory as he walked and walked. The Ganseys collectively decide to solve at least one of Adam's problems by procuring him a second-hand car. They decide to head back to Henrietta, Adam to 300 Foxway, and Gansey to sort things out with Ronan, but joyfully, wonderfully, Ronan has replaced the pig, he dreamed Gansey the world, and solved the mystery of where Cave's water has gone. And finally, at 300 Foxway, the Grey Man realises that he's not a kidnapper and will have to sever ties with his employer. A very scary prospect indeed. This is a big section for as much as we were in, like, three places. This was a huge section. There's so much going on with Kavinsky and Ronan. It's hard to distill down exactly what their relationship is, but they both think it's something different than what it is. It's amazing how much that happens in just one section. Like, it's mm. literally just the section, right? It's like two days, right? A day or a day and a half? Something like that? Yeah. There's definitely some... I have some consent issues. I feel like Kavinsky is really plying Ronan with substances that maybe Ronan doesn't necessarily want, but he's not really given a choice. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of that. I, I always I often wonder about the substance parties, like what exactly it is he's pulling out of his dreams and what they do to people because I mean like this is literally your entire job. <laughs> so you already know yeah. about the factors of actual drugs that can hurt you. <laughs> like you are aware of that. Can you imagine getting magical ones as well? Yeah, because the like the whole thing about, you know, I am very much people can make informed decisions. I don't think drugs should be illegal. I actually think if alcohol is legal, then there's no point making drugs illegal. Mm. It actually just doesn't line up. Like, you know, uh, um, pro prohibition doesn't work. Just yeah. say no doesn't work. These things have proven not to work. The safest things we can do for illegal substances is to regulate them, to have a, a formal s system, the same that we have with alcohol, so that you know exactly what you're getting. That is what reduces harm. That's what keeps people alive. Yeah. But... In this instance, this is everything you shouldn't do. You're taking something you have no idea what it is. You have no idea how it's going to react with you, with anything else mm -hmm. you're taking. Like, what is the profile of these drugs? Are they, how are they interacting with each other? How's the red pill interacting with the green pill? Do we know? Yeah. Do we care? They literally stop your heart. Like, this yeah. is not a good time. Yeah, he has to die. He has to, like, I mean, there's one point where Kavinsky says, you take the pill, the pill takes you. Like, what? I don't want anything. Any, like, I, I even get nervous about taking codeine. So I found this whole chapter very confronting. <laughs> like, mm. stop drinking. Stop taking weird drugs. Stop doing cocaine, Kavinsky. You're a child. Your brain is still developing. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> anyway, I was very yeah, stressed. Yeah, and the red pill as well, you know, the one that kind of makes Ronan lose control of his body. Like, it's a dissociative, right? Like, yeah. he is just completely not in his mind because Kavinsky's like it's easier not to think it's easier when you're not thinking so I get that that's what it's for but it's also like he puts it on Ronan's tongue that is dodgy AF like that gave me real bad vibes yeah I'm like yeah yeesh it kind of reminded me of Romeo and Juliet oh yeah Mercutio and that the... dream scene yeah mm. all the sparks except not as like languorous still summery but like worse in some ways like dirty and filthy in summary the thing is Kavinsky is so arrogant right like he is just so convinced that he has got this figured out that yeah. he knows exactly how it works that he is convinced of his own abilities and he's even like I think he's so convinced of his importance to Ronan in this moment yeah, like for sure. that's why it shocks him so much that Ronan leaves at the end because he's like you know Gansey doesn't need you but like 
Ronan also doesn't need you. I don't know why you think that he does. Yeah. You've shown him what he needed to see. So it's kind of like, Ronan's like, yeah, thanks. No, goodbye. Yeah, I thought that that was an interesting bit of arrogance on Ronan's part, actually. Like, I mean, we could talk yeah. about Kavinsky's arrogance. He just is, he's pure arrogance, really. But that was a bit of hubris, right? On Ronan's part, where mm-hmm. he, he sort of took what he needed from Kavinsky on his terms, not on Kavinsky's terms. And that's going to backfire. And there's this great yeah. moment yeah. where... You know, Kavinsky says, I will burn you down. And Ronan's smile was sharp as a knife. He had already burnt, been burned to nothing. You wish. But he hasn't already been burned to nothing. He still exactly. has a lot to lose. He just doesn't think yeah. he does. Absolutely. Ronan is completely arrogant. Like, he thinks he's untouchable. And he, you're right. He thinks he has nothing less to lose. And we know that he's wrong. He's got so much to lose. He's got his friends to lose. He's got his family to lose. Like... Yeah. He's just not aware of it in the moment. But he just sat there and did a litany of like, oh good, I fixed this. I've got the Camaro. I can take it back to Gansey. And I know the problem with Caveswater and I can fix my mom and I can make Matthew smile. And I'm like, you literally just went through the list of all the things you care about. Ah. He's just very arrogant in his I don't know. He's like so easy in his violence as well. Yeah. You know, like he's always threatening to beat Kavinsky up and it's easy. Like he says it easily. He's just very convinced of his own abilities. Yeah. This is the connection between them. They both have that darkness, right? Yeah. And he's just never been proven wrong. Like, I feel like Ronan's never been in a situation that he couldn't get himself out of. Mm. And that's why he underestimates Kavinsky. Yeah. And, like, the arrogance of him to be like, you know, whose fault is this? And he says to Kavinsky, yours. Kavinsky had said he'd teach him. He was not taught. Like, that is incredibly arrogant. Yeah. I mean, I'm here for it, but... But it's also arrogant of Kavinsky to be like, I'll teach you. Because he doesn't know that he can. I mean, dreams are so personal. The system. And I mean, they're very different for Ronan. The system is very different. Like Ronan and Kavinsky are not the same. Like yeah. for all the fact that they can take things out of their dreams, that that does not mean that they're the same thing. Like you know, mm. Ronan is the Grey Warren, and Kavinsky is not. Like Ronan has that realization. Like his connection to Caves Water is stronger. He's like you know, um, Chainsaw is the most real thing I've ever taken out of my dreams, and I didn't steal her. So he just yeah. does this thing where he's like, "Can I take it?" It's a very different connection than the one that Kavinsky obviously has with his dreaming space. Yeah, which is more about, like, snatching what you want, stealing it, taking it. It feels like he was the kind of kid who had to take what he needed in order to survive, and Ronan has not been that kid. Also, it doesn't seem like he's paralyzed after the dreaming. Like, when he wakes up, right? So it's not the same. Not the same. I wonder if that's because Ronan is fundamentally different. Yeah. Because he's the Grey Warren. I, I think that he's just fundamentally different. I think dreamers are different than Ronan. Ronan is like dreamer plus plus. Although, mm, spoilers for Grey Warren, we know that Niall and his wife, they oh, were also paralyzed when they woke up after dreaming. This is true. This is true. So maybe this is just... Like, Kavinsky just feels like a separate thing. And it's almost like he stole this ability from someone somehow. Like, this Ooh. is the vibe I get from him. Like, this is not something that is his... Yeah. It's something that he somehow lucked into or stole or figured out how to do. I'm not sure how. Mystery. I have a question for you, and it's about mm. the text messages. So Gansey gets this text message in the previous section. Yeah. Where he finds out that the pig has been totaled, and then he calls and Kavinsky answers the phone. I don't think Ronan sent those text messages. Oh, no, he didn't. It was Kavinsky, right? Okay, good. That's the way I read it as well. Like, I just read all of that as Kavinsky. And I... And I just think, I wonder if, Ad, like, Ronan even would have told, like, let me think about this. So there's a there's this whole section where he's talking about, he dreams that first Camaro, the one without the engine, page 318, and he says, the first sensation was enjoy but relief. 
He had not ruined things. He had the pig back. He could return to Monmouth without begging. Would Gansey act like no? Would Ronan actually have told Gansey he had totaled the pig? I think it's easy once he has the solution. That's why it's so easy for him to apologize. Like Gansey's like he never thought he'd live long enough to hear Ronan yeah. apologize for everything. But it's easy for Ronan to do it because he already has the solution. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. So in the timeline of events, I have. Gavinsky telling Gansey and Ronan being like, I can't believe you told Gansey, basically. Like, knowing that, but not explicitly being like, oh, well, he knows. But instead being like, okay, I have to fix it. Because he's not focused on dwelling in the feelings. He's like, I have to find a solution. Yeah, I think he would always have been solutions focused, but I just don't think yeah. he even would have told Gansey. Like, I think Gansey would have come back and the pig would have been in the parking lot and Ronan would have just been like, nothing to see yeah. here, you know? Yeah, and the only reason that Gansey found out at all was because Kavinsky needed them to break up, basically. Like, he needed Ronan to be his. He couldn't have even yeah. a part of Ronan wanting to go back to Gansey. So he needed to, like, make Gansey so angry that Ronan would be scared or ashamed to go back. I think that's kind of how I view that. It's like Kavinsky got the perfect situation handed in his lap, and he's like, great, all I have to do is keep this horribleness going so that I end up getting this boy that I really like to stay with me. Um, yeah, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? But it doesn't work, because mm. Ronan and Gansey are a unit. They're part of the, they're, you know, it's the gangsy, the pull of the gangsy. They're kindred spirits. Yeah. But Kavinsky can't understand that because he doesn't have that. He has doesn't, he's not connected to anything. He doesn't get that it's not superficial, that it's not just, you know, it's not attraction, right? Yeah. It's belonging. He can't earn a friend. He just wants to steal him. Yeah, in and out. Yeah. Which is actually, I'd love to talk about the tone of that chapter being very sexual. Yeah. The way that it's like dreamlike and you get these like in, out. It's very, very loaded, isn't it? Yeah. And even the fact that, you know, when Roman has that memory of like, he's tracing his tattoo on his back and he's like, did I dream that? Was that even something that happened? Because yeah, yeah there's something really intangible about it. Oh, oh, we've got cookies. They're little oyster cookies. Oops. And cute. Yum. Cookies. And starfishes. Adorable. They look like monsters, but they're very cute. Thanks, Spice. Do you want to pop one in the fridge Wait. for me for later? Just have it now. Okay, we'll pop it here. I'm not going to be able to eat it because I'm recording. Yeah. Thanks. So Can you lock the door on your way out? Oh, sure. Thank you. They look great. You did a good job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am going to say mm. that Gansey's a little bit arrogant in this section. Oh, so much, yeah. I think, I think Adam definitely would view him as arrogant. Mm. I just, like, that moment when he goes to look for Adam, and, you know, he hasn't looked for him all day, and then he's, like, he's mildly irritated, but he also understands, that, like, Adam doesn't want to show his face, whatever, whatever. Uh, but now he needed him, and I'm like, wow, Gansey. <laughs> now yeah. you need him, so now you go looking for him. Like, mm, I don't, that's not great, my man. <laughs> Yeah, I wondered about that too. But then I thought, like, sometimes when I'm frustrated with someone in my family, for example, like, I will give them space because I know that they need it. But then, like, I need to make it right or we need to bridge it somehow. So I'll be like, okay, it's time. Like, we gotta we gotta get past this. That's how I read it. But I think the arrogance I, I found was much more in the way that the Gansies just assume that anyone will want their help oh yeah no the gansies as a unit definitely is quite arrogant but also they think they can fix it like they just assume they yeah. can fix this and like some things you can't fix like 
His mother giving Adam this comically big rubber plant just cracks me up. But also, like, what is this solving? Like, I don't understand yeah. what the... Like, this is not helpful, but is, okay, sure. Yeah, I think it's... it's You're right, it's not solving anything. But it's the kind of thing that says, I am thinking of you, and I want you to have a tangible reminder of that. And... I don't read it like that at really? all. Really? Really? Nah, oh. to me, this is classic someone doing something to make themselves feel better rather than actually helping the person. It's like, yeah. I feel bad about this, so I have to soothe my own discomfort, so I'm going to force this thing upon you that you do not want, but yeah. it'll make me feel better. So, have it. Classic well, that, rich people behavior. But they already know that there's nothing they can do that will actually help Adam because Adam refuses to let them. So they're trying to do something that will... This is See, this is the way I read it. I read it that they took Gansey's suggestion that they're not able to fix his actual problems very seriously. Like, they're like, he should be staying with you and he should have a car. And, like, they're able to fix one of those massive problems, but they can't fix Adam's dad. They can't fix the scholarship thing. They can't really make it easier for him. But they still want to help because they view him as important because Gansey loves him. And so they kind of have to go to, like, well, have this vest and have this plant. And, like, Helen has to be like, I'm annoyed. Do this thing for me. And it's kind of a pretense, but I don't know. It's not helpful. I don't think it's, like, the best thing to do would just to be bear witness. Like, you're not supposed to do something you can't do anything so just don't do anything like just yeah. stand there yeah you know be still and just stand there and they can't do it don't just do something and stand there yeah they really can't that's that's an arrogance that they feel such control yeah. over their lives that they need to have control over this too and also this idea that adam was a friend is you know it was gansey's friend and so he had inherent worth like i really mm. that to me is arrogance as well because the minute that gansey stops being friends with adam he's worthless to them and he has like forgotten and that is also a horrible thing and a horrible yeah. way to treat someone. I just, yeah. I love the farce that Helen and Gansey have about the, like, the little play acting they do. Being like, what? What? This is like a whole little drama. <laughs> Ridiculous. I love Helen so much. And I think she just shines because she does like, uh, she just enjoys fixing problems. She really enjoys solving a problem. And she loves a bit of theater as well and i just adore mm -hmm. her i adore her i think she's got her heart in the right place and she's also willing to help her brother like she immediately clues in that gansey needs help like he is not he's not arrogant about it at all he's like we had a fight i can't find him so she just helps him look she doesn't and like mm -hmm. this is the other thing i find really good like the family they are arrogant in a lot of ways but they also have a lot of humility around it like adam's missing so they just cancel their flights they cancel yeah. their evening they make it happen to find him they spend that evening looking for him and no one's like why would he leave what's happening or why are we looking for the 17 year old mm. kid he's probably old enough to look after himself they just all immediately throw themselves together and start using their community connections i thought that was great i was really impressed by that yeah, I thought that was a real moment of connection between them. Yeah. Like, there's no, you know, the Gansies as a unit, they're mm -hmm. going to be there for each other, regardless of whatever else is going on. Um, The other thing about Gansey in this section, though, is part of me thinks... I, I, okay, I'll tell you this. So page 305, there's that line, he'd always been able to fight for so much longer than anyone else. So this is Gansey observing the fact that Adam is just, like, not talking. He's gotten in the car yeah. and he's silent. So there's two ways to interpret this, I think. You could interpret this as think Gansey thinking that Adam is continuing the fight that they had, like he's not engaging, he's not talking to them. Yeah. Or you can interpret that as Gansey viewing Adam's silence as Adam giving up, you know, like without fighting the bigger fight. Ooh. But then they have that weird loaded conversation before they go back to Henrietta when, you know, Gansey's standing at the door of the Suburban. Yeah. And he is still sort of having this fight because he's so frustrated with Adam, right? And he just wants him to apologize. But Adam doesn't actually have anything to apologize for. 
it's not his fault that he wandered off, you know? But yeah. he can't communicate with Gansey what he is going through and his connection with reality that is fraying, right? Like his connection yeah. to the ley line that's causing his connection to reality to completely fray. And I just think it's that is a bit of arrogance on Gansey's part to assume that the fight is the cause of that silence. Do you think so? I viewed it as like the fight against all of the extenuating circumstances that Adam is always struggling under the weight of. If you read it in that interpretation, yeah. That's how I viewed it. I was like, oh my gosh, he's seeing what Ronan was like a few chapters before. Like, I've I've seen a, a face on the on the edge of breaking and Adam was covered in fracture lines. I feel like Gansey is looking at him and is like, okay, the fracture is beginning. I would believe that if not for the fact that he even pushes it before they drive off. Like, that feels weirdly loaded to me. But because we're viewing it from Adam's point of view, it's hard to know. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Adam sees what he wants to see. He super does. And he even gives... There was this great moment where on page 327, he's, he says he needed to stop waiting and start acting. He was no better than Gansey hoping for someone else to wake the ley line. He needed to move. A, not what happened. Gansey was like, mm. we don't want to die because this guy has now tried to kill us. So let's not go die. That was what happened. It wasn't that Gansey wanted someone else to wake the ley line. It's that he didn't want anybody to be killed by Welk. So... A, incorrect. Yeah. And then he said he needed to move. I'm going to Foxway to ask her advice, which I don't think is something that he would have done if he hadn't just had this really humiliating experience where he was literally brought so low. He had to be rescued and had no idea of where he was. Yeah, and I kind of love that connection between mm. Ronan and Adam both losing time. Like, Ronan yeah. makes that connection. Well, he says on Patreon 9, time had no meaning. Days were irrelevant. And then you have Adam completely losing this day right like he has no yeah. idea what happened well and even Gansey at one point right the entire day seemed imaginary between the news of the Camaro in the morning and looking for Adam all afternoon mm. it was like the time was just a weird nothing for all of them that day mm. I always read that line as being I think you're right it could be supported either way but I always read it as Gansey being aware that Adam is like really at the end of his tether there with the entirety of all he has to do but still being like I'm only trying to help and what if I just left him? What if I just gave up? What if I stopped trying? Because I feel like he's throwing himself into trying to help his friend the best and most considered way he could and is never getting any of the feedback that it's, like, helpful. And he tries. He tries so many different ways. But Adam just pushes back every time. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it's hard. Like, as someone who is reticent to ever accept help as well, sometimes it's mm -hmm. hard when people just keep offering to help because you're like, there's only so many times you can tell them to, like, not. And then eventually you do just kind of lose it a little bit because it is frustrating. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, it's not to say that you shouldn't accept help or whether, you, you know, that's kind of irrelevant. It's sometimes you just need to listen to people when they tell you what they need. And I feel like Gansey doesn't hear Adam because he wants to help and he, he can see a way through it. And he just doesn't meet Adam on his level. He's always trying to drag Adam up to his level where he mm. can help. And you actually just need to step down and meet Adam where he is, which is where Ronan is really good. Like, Ronan always meets Adam exactly where he is. Yeah. But, you know, Gansey's just so noble. <laughs> he can't help it. Yeah. There's a lot here. And Adam needs to grow up and Gansey needs to grow in, I think, a little bit. It was really telling to see the Gansies all together, wasn't it? Mm. You can see where Gansey gets his nobility, but also where that pride comes in, that arrogance. You can definitely see how easy it would be for Gansey to be his father, like to mm -hmm. be that person, to play that role. Like that moment in the car when they both throw up their hands at the exact yeah, same time, that's such one. a good way to just mimic 
you know, this is who he could be. This is the, the mirror of him. But yeah. it's really telling that Gansey actively chooses not to be that. Like, he yeah. makes an active choice that this is not who he wants. This is not who he is on the inside. Yeah. The real mm. Gansey was stuffed really far down, right? So that, like, his yeah. true self was hidden, so he didn't have any emotion on his face. Which is all of them. They're all like that. They're all extremely public-facing people. Do you think that Gansey views Adam's insistence on not accepting help, on doing everything himself, as arrogance? Yeah, I do. Mm. And I think Adam views Gansey's repeated insistence that he doesn't have to do everything himself as another form of arrogance. He views it as, mm. like, charity. But I look at it... It's really hard for me to untangle myself from this because I feel like there is a community here and there's this active community between them all that's not necessarily um being honored and that really like that's where adam is falling down he says it's you know he, like he's, he thinks it's like this way that gansey does it to make himself feel better but i think it's about gansey really wanting to give his friends the same like opportunities and ease of life that he has because he has the means right it's the same with blue yeah. like when he's trying to pay for a lunch and she's like no i'll pay for it myself and it's like no let him pay he's got nothing but money well exactly <laughs> and like Gansey's dad collects famous cars. Mm. They could literally buy a car for Adam with the interest earned on any of their one millions of investments, right? Like in a day's worth of interest, they could buy now, something quickly, for Adam. But they, yeah, but like they wouldn't feel it. And he he keeps trying to explain this, and Adam's like, "No, I have to make my, I have to do this myself. Why?" The way Helen so quickly acquires this car as well, like literally within a day, she's got this horrible yeah. car. It's a beautiful, it is an absolutely beautiful fiction. And I love that they come up with this and they have to make it terrible enough that Adam will accept it. It's his nothing, but it is his nothing. I mean, if he paused and thought about it for a moment, why would Helen have this car? Like, why would she ever drive a car like this? Honestly. There's just no way. For <laughs> sure. I mean, like maybe a mid 2000s Toyota Corolla or something I would buy, but like nothing this terrible. <laughs> it is so funny but I, I think that they kind of are like we've got to do something and he really does need a car like they find the one useful thing that they can do and they actually do it which is good for them but I don't love that Adam has to be brought so low I don't love that he has to get to this awful point in order to accept help and he really hates accepting it like he's he's fighting so much against who he believes he is and what he's having to do in order to survive right now which is a really terrible a terrible way to be mm. I just feel it. Like, this is a really hard book for me, I think, because Adam is having such a hard time. I was wondering if it's arrogance that the grey man isn't really that worried about Green Mantle. He's kind of like, yeah, I'll call him. I'll see. Like, maybe he'll buy this lie. I don't know. Like, we'll wing yeah. it, right? I don't know if it's arrogance. I do think that he is not regretting wanting things, but he's realizing that he's now in trouble because he wants things. I, I feel like connection was more his problem this week. He'd made connections to people in Henrietta and he was like, oh, great. Now I can't do the thing. I can't actually bring an item back to Green Mantle. But I want to stay. I want. And that's the problem. But I think the arrogance is that Green Mantle thinks that everything that he wants can be collected. That's more the arrogance I read from that. And that he can pay for anything, right? He's like, well, how much did they pay you? Like, he thinks everyone can be bought. Yeah, it's the Kavinsky and Gansey. Like, the worst traits of Kavinsky and the worst traits of Gansey is that everything can be stolen or everything can be bought. Yeah. Like, I want it, so I will get it. Um, 
you could also say that, you know, the women of Foxway are a little bit arrogant because, you know, when you know the future, it's hard not to be arrogant. Yeah. Yeah. I did love Calla's like, oh, I could tell that that drink is terrible because Mora made it. <laughs> it was such a mean Mor- thing to say, but so funny. Also, when they're like, can you not tell them that they're nice boys? And Calla's like, one of them's not a nice boy. I mean, neither of them are really nice, which is fair. No. But yeah. Hmm. Just take Kavinsky. You don't need Bronan. Just take Kavinsky to Green Mint. (laughs) I know. Wouldn't that solve a lot of problems? Just take that one. Just, but you know, he, I mean, I think that the gray man has an interesting point, which is that like his line is that he's not a kidnapper. Hmm. He's a hitman. He's fine murdering people, but he's not taking, he's not kidnapping. So yeah. it's yeah. good to have boundaries. It's good to set your expectations with your employer. I applaud that. Yeah. I thought, I thought that was interesting because I was like, well, just take Kavinsky. No one will miss him. <laughs> I'm a terrible person for thinking that. But yeah. I mean, the, the entire, the, the difference, this is another thing I really wanted to point out, was that the difference between the women of 300 Foxway and the Gansies is that, you know, Gansey's dad looks at Adam as being worthwhile because he's Gansey's friend. The women of 300 Foxway are like, you can't steal a person. Like, there's a mm. difference there. Like, a person is already worthy on their own. But, you know, Gansey's dad, he just is like, oh, well, they're a friend of my son, so they matter. Um, and Gansey actually repeats this to Ronan. And this is what goes through Ronan's head is that, you know, the difference between us and Kavinsky is that we matter, which is very mm. much something that he learned from home. So I thought that was an interesting parallel. Yeah, because that's kind of like the that Kavinsky comment is sort of the worst of what Ronan's, uh, what um, Gansey's dad also says, you know, when G- Gansey's explaining Adam's home life, right? Yeah. And his dad has that horrible comment when he's like, why do they let people like that breathe? Yeah. Which is an indictment on Adam, right? Like Adam only exists because that happened. So it's yeah. like, by saying that, you're saying that Adam is not worthwhile and doesn't exist, even though in the same breath you're saying that he is worthwhile because he's Gansey's friend but he's only worthwhile because he's Gansey's friend yeah it's just yeah and that I thought you know Gansey was really wounded when he made that comment and you really saw kind of like the worst of him in that and I feel like he maybe didn't mean it to be that horrible because like not to be a Gansey's dad apologist but I think my comment would have been something more like why are those people allowed to be parents like why hasn't someone intervened? Why hasn't this kid been protected? <laughs> Not why don't they let these people breed as if they're cattle, right? Like it's deliberately written so that we see the absolute worst of, of Gansey's dad. Also because Gansey has sort of already edited himself. Like he wasn't going to say trailer because he yeah. didn't like the way that, what that would conjure in his parents' minds. So yeah, he says exactly. house. So he's already, we've already been set up to read that comment a certain way. Yeah, yeah. We like we know that his parents have certain class notions that are going to be really hard to shake. Um, mm. I, but I am glad that Gansey doesn't let his dad get away with it. He just waits, like he waits. It's such a good and powerful thing to do, just to be silent and look and be like, "Come on, you can do better, Dad. I know it's there." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's an awful thing to say, and it's absolutely not like no one chooses to be born, and also people should be allowed to have kids. Like. Ugh. Yeah, you can't just, yeah, you can't set boundaries on that, being like, oh, you have to earn a certain amount of money before you can have children. Like, that's horrible. No, it's not. Yeah. So frustrating. I wonder if Kavinsky felt more of a connection with Ronan knowing what he was for all that time and thus started this antagonism between them. I thought maybe he had tried previously, but because Ronan is so inaccessible unless you are antagonizing him, Mm -hmm. you kind of have to, to get his attention. Yeah, like you can tick him off, but you can't really get him to 
be friends with you. Yeah. I wonder how Ronan feels knowing that someone had known all of that time. Like, he, his whole life has been such a secret. And even before he really allowed himself to know, Kavinsky knew what he was. That's got to be confronting. That has to feel super vulnerable. I feel like they do a lot of bonding. Like, there is actually a lot of vulnerability. Yeah. Like, you know, Kavinsky tells him about his past, well, sort of, and about his mom. You know, they do share a lot of confidences in this kind of drug-fueled 48-hour period. Yeah. Which is, again, why I think it shocks Kavinsky that Ronan's just like, okay, bye. Yeah, it's <laughs> cool, very cool abrupt, story. isn't it? It's not like, thank you for teaching me, I need to go back now. It was like, I'm leaving. It's straight up, I've gotten what I need from you, so therefore, this is done. Yeah, there's a lot of arrogance in the way that Ronan just does that, just leaves. Like, he severs the connection that they'd made, and they had made a connection. Like, he he treats it like nothing was happening, but there was definitely something happening. Although, I guess there were clear boundaries at the start, you know, when... Kavinsky's like, I'll teach you how to do this thing. So for Ronan, he's like, well, you've taught me how to do the thing. I've gotten the thing. So therefore this is at an end. So in a way, yeah. you're right. It's just missed. There's just a misreading of what is happening. Like what yeah. they each think it is. They just have very different ideas of what is going on. Yikes, though. <laughs> it is yikes. Um, I think the last thing I had for connection was that it's really, it's really interesting that Adam is losing the connection to himself. Whatever made Adam, Adam had just vanished while his body shambled on. Mm. It was on page 325. That's a really scary feeling, not knowing what you're doing and not knowing who you are and knowing that you're losing that time, but not being able to do anything about it. Like that's actually quite terrifying. Yeah. And I think especially for him who, you know, he is so motivated by being in control of his own destiny of making his own choices. So to have that stripped away from him is doubly horrific yeah the loss of autonomy for sure yeah um did you have anything else for connection or arrogance no that was all of it um i for tangential i had a couple so mainly on page 311 you know the pen wrote any, everything in dainty cursive and then 312 he held a meta cage with a tiny glass camera on it i just love how intricate and beautiful and delicate Ronan's dreams are. Mm. Like, he just has these beautiful, magical dreams compared to Kavinsky's, where he's just, like, dreaming horrible things all of the time. Guns, pills, more beer. But Ronan just has this, like, really beautiful, poetic dreaming soul, which, again, is just how you know that he's not all bad, right? Because he can do these things. I want that pen, by the way. Where is that pen? Give me that pen. (laughs) I would love to have beautiful handwriting effortlessly. Hmm... Um, I loved how on page 316, it was badly against Ronan's code to be impressed, much less show it, but the accuracy and the yeah. detail was striking. I mean, Kavinsky is a great forger. Even in dreams, he's a great forger. And I love that he's like, oh, yes, okay. I acknowledge that this is good. But he doesn't want to show it because he doesn't like being impressed by things. Yeah, fair. And then I almost chose this one for my end up because I loved it so much. On page 318, after he dreamed the first Chimera, the one that didn't work, or the one that didn't have an engine, and then the joy hit. It was worse than Kavinsky's green pills. He was hurled into the emotion. It pummeled him and thrilled him. He'd been so proud Mm -hmm. of the puzzle box, of his sunglasses, of the keys. How stupid he'd been then, like a kid in love with his crayon drawings. Those were good things. Like, that. the sunglasses and the puzzle box and the keys... They were very cool things. Like, you can be proud of what you do. You can be proud when you improve, but you should still be proud of your prior work. It doesn't just have to be big, right? Like, you don't just have to dream big things. Look, my advice is to be proud of your progress, however small it is, or however large it is. Good advice. Uh, Did you have anything else for Tangential? I've already mentioned all my other ones, so... Uh, I think the last thing I wanted to do was point out that on page 313, Kavinsky didn't look away. I never tried to do anything, man. I do what I mean to do. So that is a big, fat omen. He 
he said he's gonna burn your life down ronan get a bunch of fire extinguishers handy also just arrogance arrogance from kavinsky like honestly oh, yeah. he's just so arrogant he just assumes he can do whatever he wants and get away with it well, he's had kind of that play out for him, hasn't he? He hasn't really been challenged on that in a lot of ways. But he hasn't challenged Ronan. Like, he hasn't challenged another dreamer. Like, you're not operating on a level playing field. Yeah, that's true. Um, did you have an in-depth today? I did. So it's a bit of a, an odd one, but bear with me. It's page 307. Um, it's when the Ganses are discussing Adam's predicament and how they all want to solve it together. Mm. And Gansey says he won't. He just won't. Adam has to do everything himself. He won't take anything that looks like a handout. He's paying his own wage through school. He has three jobs. The other Gansies' faces were approving. The family as a whole enjoyed charm and pluck. And this idea of Adam Parrish, self-made man, appealed to them immensely. So arrogance, because I think, again, this is just the, you know, the Gansies, they're kind of seeing in a way, they want to see a problem that they can solve. And like, as we've already discussed, there's a lot of arrogance in approaching things like that. Yeah. But it's also a connection between Gansey and Adam, because like, he just knows Adam so well. Like, he just really understands him. And even though he doesn't understand him, he does understand him. You know, he gets, mm. he just doesn't know what to do with that information. Yeah. But the thing that struck me when I read this was this is exactly why people vote against their best interests. Like this to me is republicanism in a single paragraph. Like these are people going around being like, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like everyone, if you just work hard enough, you can make yourself a self-made man. And it just, it's not how real life works. Like Adam is destroying himself trying to reach that ideal as well like he believes yeah. that he can do it. But the Gansies are like generational wealth to the point yeah. where... They are untouchable, basically. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, they love this idea of pluck and they love this idea. Rich people love this idea of like poor people pulling themselves out of the dirt and like making a go of it because it makes them feel better about their own privilege. They're just like, well, yeah. we worked hard and my great grandfather worked hard and that's why I am where I am. And it's not the case. Like, it's not the case. And if once you reach a certain level of wealth, you only have that wealth because you are stepping on other people. Yeah. You are making life difficult and harder for other people and that's why you get to be rich so i just really resent that i re resent the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because we're not all starting from the same starting blocks we're not all starting from the same line yeah and i just want people to remember that when it comes to like elections and stuff you can't vote aspirationally to be like well i i'm gonna vote for the party that's best for rich people because i hope to one day be a rich person you have to vote for the people yeah. who need help you need to vote for the lowest common denominator because we live in yes. a community and when all of us survive and all of us thrive we're better off so yeah just remember that when they try yes. to con you into believing this <laughs> nonsense absolutely um Especially poignant after the midterm elections in the U.S. They did not get the red wave that they were predicting they would get. And I'm very grateful for that because I have a lot of vulnerable family members and I just want their lives to be better. And the voting is literally the only thing I can do in so many of those circumstances. Just vote for the people that are going to make the vulnerable people a little bit better, a little bit more protected, have a little bit more agency and possibly comfort and ability to survive without having to like scrape by every second 
Yeah. And it's just honestly, everyone's better off. Like the whole, your whole society benefits when you do things like that. It's not, it's not you versus your neighbor. Your the vulnerable really people in your society is not your enemy. Those are not the people you should yeah. be going after. I just want to, in addition to that, say that, you know, you're not a burden to society. Society is meant to serve its members. People are not burdens. They belong in society. Like it serves to function them. And the government is made to help the people that they lead, right? Like this, this is part of it, you know? This is the reason that we have things like taxes so that they can pay for things like hospitals and roads and schools and healthcare. Like it's to benefit society. So yeah, I, I don't yeah. want to benefit like the guy who runs the Evil River Corporation or the guy who runs the, you know, Second Life 2.0 Corporation. Like I don't care about those guys. They have plenty. I care about the people who don't have enough food or don't have job security or are sick and can't afford healthcare. That, that's what yeah. I want to vote to project. Yeah, yep. Tax the rich. No one should be a billionaire. That's just immoral. It is. Having that I much do, wealth I do is so. immoral. Anyway, luckily, you know, we live in. I especially live in an incredibly left-wing country. Like even our mm. right-wing party is far left of the Democrats. So it's kind of like sometimes hard to deal with people who who just don't view it like that and who do view things like oh, taxation is theft. I'm like, how? It keeps your society running. Do you yeah. not want free healthcare? Why do you not want free healthcare? Talk me through that. Do you think it's fair that someone leaves a maternity ward with a $200,000 bill? Like, what is wrong with you? It doesn't make sense to me. I've lived in Australia for almost two decades. And like, the longer I live here, the more I'm like, thank goodness for the public healthcare system. There are definitely times we've chosen not to utilize public services because we can afford not to. And I think schooling is the main one for us. Like, we we have enrolled our, our son in a a private special needs school because the places in our local public schools are so full and there's such mm. a long wait list and so I sort of made the call like okay well we can actually afford this so we need to do this because there are other families out there who really can't and need the space yeah. that we would otherwise take like that's that's about where I'm like well this is how I can use my wealth for good <laughs> like providing yeah, yeah, a space totally. for another kid you know not getting on an ambulance when you can drive yourself to the the hospital kind of thing that was my mm. view but that's totally fair it's hard out there it's hard out there Anyway, yeah, so sorry, political rant, but it just really <laughs> riled me up. These rich people being like, oh, the pluck of this boy. Like, no, you're completely missing the fact that this is destroying him. But cool story. No, um, I agree with you. When, when I wrote on the on the side of my margin for that was, they have no idea how hard it is for him. Like, this is not a story of pluck and charm and bootstraps. This is somebody killing themselves. And when you've never worked three jobs, you don't understand. Like, you know, they've never worked three jobs. They haven't gone to school and worked three jobs. You know, Like, they have no concept of it. So for them, hard work is like a cute little thing thing hmm. you know cute little story isn't that adorable that yeah nah, i'm not here for it <laughs> what was your in-depth um my in-depth is from a similar part in the story it's uh Gansey's dad on page 306 although he didn't know adam well his concern ran deep and genuine adam was his son's friend and so he had inherent worth and we already covered this a bit, but like basically what's happening is Gansey's dad is trying to figure out what's going on with Adam because it's obvious to him that Adam matters to Gansey, therefore this kid matters to Mr. Gansey. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of arrogance in this particular phrase. Um, Mr. Gansey is very kind, but he's really kind in a limited way. His arrogance lies in the fact that Adam only matters because Gansey deems him to matter, which is a failing of Gansey as well. Um, and I spoke about this before, but Gansey's comment to Ronan all those sections ago where he said the difference between us and Kavinsky is that we matter. That is a similar vibe. That is a similar sentiment. And this is what Ronan falls back on. Oh, I matter. Kavinsky doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, 
in this case, it's the connection to Gansey that makes Adam worthy, which is not true, but it's exactly what Adam is afraid of being true. So it's really interesting to seeing that to see that played out in this like sort of limited camera of Gansey's dad. Um, and I was thinking about other dads and other, you know, friends of dads in, in various texts. And I was thinking about Mr. Wellbelove and Simon Snow and how Agatha's dad and carry on is so fond of Simon and how F Simon is so fond of him. And there's a similar like sponsorship there. But when Agatha and Simon break up, like Simon mourns that friendship almost more than he kind of is sad about him and Agatha breaking up. Like he's more bummed out that he doesn't get to like hang out with her dad anymore. Mm. Um, I like fair enough because he doesn't have a parent that he can really look to. But it just made me think of like Adam. It made me think that I don't I don't think that Adam would be OK with that type of relationship with Mr. Gansey, but I reckon that Mr. Gansey would 100% be like, here's my other kid, Adam, if Gansey asked him to. I think that he mm. would fully and wholeheartedly take this kid under his wing, and like it would probably not be a good relationship for Adam in a lot of ways, but I think he would do it. And mm. It just made me kind of examine like what his motives were there. So, I mean, going forward, I just want to say to your point, and to the way we both believe, as humans, we matter, but there is something to be said for the way that we can't care about everybody, like, really deeply and fully, and I feel this a lot, that I just cannot stretch myself to be as compassionate as I know in my heart that I want to be and should be. Sometimes I do have to pull myself back and be like, who can I actually focus on? And so in this way, is Gansy's dad really a jerk because he needs the framework of somebody loves to care about a random kid, or is it a bad thing to sort of have a limit on who you're going to care about if you know that you can't save everyone, or is it, like, a good way to, like, foster and deepen your own connections? I don't really know. I don't really know. I couldn't decide how I felt about it other than to know that I objected in the beginning that the framework had to be like, this person is valuable because they're connected to someone I love. But now I'm wondering, isn't that how we make all connections? We can say mm. people are valuable, but like there are a million people I walk by all the time that I just like, I, I wish them well. I don't wish them harm. And if something happened, I would like rush over to help them. Right. But like, I don't know them. So I don't actually care about them. Like they hold a space in my brain as being a person and therefore they're important. But I don't have a fundamental connection. I just wondered, you know, how that plays out in my own life and how that plays out in other people's lives. So that was kind of my thinking there. I don't have a, a good pat answer or a suggestion. I just want to examine it better. No, it's interesting. And I think you're right. Like we do make connections and that's how we decide with how much we're going to invest in people and how much we're going to care. Yeah. I think in this particular instance, the issue I took with it is that he does know Adam. You know, it's not like the first time he met Adam. He does know Adam. At Gads, he's been friends with him for a while. And this kid was under your roof and under your care. Mm. I just feel like he should have value as his own person. You shouldn't have to frame it as because he's Gansey's friend. Because he... I just feel like it's more than that. But... And you also have a duty of care to someone who is there under your ha under your roof for an event that you're hosting who has gone missing. Like, yeah, it, it should be separate. Should be separate from whether he's your... Like, even if he was Gansey's mortal enemy, you should still have gone looking for him and cared about him, right? Like, yeah. even if it was Kavinsky, you should, would still have gone looking for him. So... Yeah. So, just because of the context. But it's definitely interesting. Because we can't care about everyone. And, like, I am notoriously bad at this. Like, I don't care about a lot of people. <laughs> um, not that I don't care. Like, I don't wish ill upon them. I just can't expense... I'm like Ronan, and you're like unless you're antagonizing me, you're invisible to me. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, it's definitely interesting and definitely something I will be thinking of going forward as well. It's a good way to frame it. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, who do you want to spotlight this week? 
I am spotlighting Adam just because feeling so out of control of your own body is terrifying. It's legit one of my most feared things is that I will just one day lose complete control of my body and just, yeah, just don't have any control. And I think especially for him, that's that's a very scary thing when he is so motivated by having control and making his own decisions. So that lack of autonomy is, it's a terrifying thing. So I just wanted to spotlight him. How about you? Same. Um, for a few reasons, but my main one is it's really terrible to have to ask for help. It's terrible when you need help and you have to ask for it. It's terrible to be angry about having to ask for it and having to accept it, and it is terrible to be helpless. I really feel Adam in these sections just trying to hold on so much to what little of himself there is. And it's just, it's rough. He needs, like, a hug mm. and, like, a scholarship for the rest of his tuition and, like, a week-long nap. Yeah. Well, next week we're going to be reading chapters 48 through 53 through the theme of revenge, which should be mm. interesting. So, yeah. Love a bit of revenge. Big fan. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who hasn't had those, like, sit down and just have a little daydream about all the revenge you would get if you could? Yeah. Thank you for potting with me. It was so good. I loved reading these chapters, and I'm so glad that we got to talk about this. It was a really juicy chat, I felt like. Yeah, big, big things, big themes, a lot to deal with. So thank you. Appreciate your insight as always and for challenging me to be a better person. <laughs> Love it. Hard same, hard same. You always give me something something to think about <laughs> and another way to look at something and I love that. I love you. This is great. I love you too. All right. Well, see you, see you next week. week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginally Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginally Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com.